3: Stripping down
2: science...
3: The Naked Scientists.
2: Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And also here this week is Katani. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now this week we're going to be finding out how a company are offering to store a copy of your immune system on ice until you need it. Also, how scientists have turned the rabies virus into a nanoscale Trojan horse to help them smuggle drugs into your brain. We'll also be finding out whether the firstborn is necessary is necessarily the brightest, top of the IQ pile. A mirror mirror on the moon. Researchers have come up with a way to build a a moon-based telescope a thousand times more, more powerful than the Hubble telescope. More on that coming up shortly.
4: Also this week, it's Armageddon! What happens when the Earth is hit by a massive meteorite? And is that really what did for the dinosaurs? Or was it a massive volcanic eruption? We have Janet Sumner here from the Open University to explain all that, all the apocalypse. Um, we'll also be shaking up the world of seismology to find out how earthquakes work with Columbia University's Peter Kellerman and finding out how earthworms are helping scientists to clean up arsenic in Argentina and in our kitchen science this week we'll be finding out whether that old thing about tapping the top of the fizzy drinks can before you open it really does stop it spraying all down your top
2: so if you want to have a go at that grab a couple of cans of pop and uh, we'll be linking up with Ben and Dave they're at Kegs in Essex and we'll be joining them in a moment or two to find out how to do that experiment also here's this week's teaser question you can win yourself a copy of a fabulous new book it's been published by Penguin and it's called The Rough Guide to the Earth so a lot of what we're going to be discussing this week is in that book it's a fabulous new book and I'll also throw in a sign copy of our book which is naked science and that comes also added bonus here it comes with a guarantee to brighten up the conversation even at the dullest dinner party so if you want to win a copy can you tell us who developed the scale that's used to measure the strength of an earthquake the naked Scientists podcast powered by uk fast the uk's best hosting provider on the web at
5: ukfast.net
2: a very interesting uh, thing that's been announced this week is uh, there's a company in the UK and they're called Life Force, and they're offering CAT to take samples of your pristine immune system when you're in the throes of your youth and health and store it on ice so that should you ever succumb to some kind of disease later in your life you could thaw out your frozen immune system, put it back into the body and therefore reset your immune clock by 25 years or so or however long you've had it stored for because there are lots of people who have various diseases such as cancers and things. They then have to have chemotherapy which can blunt their immune system and make them vulnerable to infections because the immune system after that kind of treatment doesn't work so well so they're saying we could put these banked cells which they've stored in liquid nitrogen and and then And they've expanded the numbers of those cells by adding various growth factors and things back into the body and restore, reset your immune system.
4: Well, it sounds pretty interesting. Another aspect of this uh, that they're proposing is that, for example, for treating cancer, you could thaw out these immune cells and then train them uh, by mixing them with other cells or with molecules to recognise cancer. And it's something that's kind of at an experimental stage at the moment. It's quite interesting but, um, you know, it depends if you're a gambling man as to whether you think that it's going to be available as a, as a treatment in a couple of decades' time.
2: Another thing they've suggested is uh, things like HIV, which dismantles your immune system, and people obviously succumb later down the line to various infections because their immune system's been dismantled and can't affect, can't, can't affect a very good uh, defence. They're saying you could put this back in to the patients whose immune system's been destroyed by something like HIV, and it would give the person a bit more sort of immune vigour if you like but I have a problem with that which is that uh, the reason people die with HIV is because the virus evolves in that person and eventually becomes a form of the virus that the immune system can't recognise and that's why it can then attack you so efficiently and it takes time for that to to happen so if you just put the immune system back in it's still going to have that sort of loophole in it so the virus should still be able to win.
4: Yeah I mean do you think you'd have it done? Would you freeze your immune cells?
2: Well, I don't see why not. Because you are merely sort of freezing something which you've got plenty of anyway. We've got millions and millions of white blood cells in the body, and if you froze a sort of cross section of what your immune system is doing at any time, there's no reason why your body wouldn't just accept them back later because they're part of you.
4: Yeah, it's a question of money, though. <laughs> I don't get paid. I mean, it's as... not cheap. You do have uh, to pay them obviously yeah. to
2: bank the cells and then keep them on 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 liquid nitrogen. Because you can't just stick them in the time. back
4: of the freezer with the frozen peas, unfortunately. Anyway. A study in the latest edition of The Lancet suggests that a new type of gene therapy might be a safe and effective way to stave off the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Now, so far, it's a really small trial, and there's been about 12 patients with advanced Parkinson's. They've been treated over three years in a small-scale trial. And the treatment involves injecting a virus that's been genetically modified to carry the gene for a protein called GAD, and this stands for glutamic acid decarboxylase. Now, this protein's vital for producing a neurotransmitter in the brain called GABA. And this production is faulty in Parkinson's, so the brain kind of goes into hyperdrive and causes problems like tremors, uh, stiffness and all these kind of things. So adding extra GAD through this virus is thought to boost the levels of GABA and it helps to damp down this hyperactivity. And after treating these patients, they had on average about a 30% improvement in symptoms after they'd done things like brain scanning.
2: How did they get the virus in? So how did they they actually get the virus to get into the brain to deliver the GAD?
4: It's an injection. I think this was an injection actually into the brain.
2: So it's quite traumatic. Yeah,
4: um, but at the moment they've just done this small scale trial. So the next step is to try and do a a larger scale trial, uh, a sort of placebo control trial to see how effective it is. And also it's worth stressing that the treatment's not going to get rid of the disease, but it should help to damp down the symptoms of it.
2: Well, just thinking because this next item I read this week, which is in the journal Nature, has been d- done by a guy in Harvard in the States called Manju Swami and, and his crew. And they have managed to exploit the virus rabies, which everyone's acquainted with because it's one of nature's nastiest pathogens. And they've turned it into a, the equivalent of a Trojan horse. They've borrowed the coat of the virus, which is something called RVG, rabies virus glycoprotein. And because rabies invades the nervous system, this coat protein naturally has the ability to lock on to what's called the blood-brain barrier, which keeps the brain isolated in its own sort of cocoon in the body. And the virus knows how to penetrate that. So the researchers have been able to link this protein from the surface of the virus to various things, including molecules like drugs that you want to move into the brain. And then they injected it into mice, and it went around the bloodstream, locked onto the blood-brain barrier, and then carried the drug into the brain's and into brain cells in these mice. And they were able to even use this technique to shut off genes, including the genes of infecting organisms and viruses, so you could cure these mice of a, of a fatal brain infection using this technique. So I think that's amazing.
4: That's really exciting, because things like uh, treatments for brain cancer and diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, they do have a real problem with getting into the brain, because the brain's so good at keeping stuff and As you just out.
2: said, you have to just drill holes in people's heads and put injections in. Well, if you could use this kind of technique, you might be able to, to bring in various factors that will boost the levels of this enzyme. You mentioned GAD, which boosts the GABA in the brain, and you could do it without having to drill holes in heads to do it.
4: Pretty exciting stuff. So there was a good side to rabies after all. Anyway, here's some news that confirms what I've thought for some time. And that is that the oldest child in a family, like me and like Dr Chris, is likely to have a higher IQ than his or her siblings. Now this was published Even in... Even if you say
2: so yourself.
4: <laughs> Even if I say so myself. My sisters are, though, much more beautiful and attractive than I am. So, you know... No comment there, Captain. Upsides and downsides to this. Anyway, it's been published in Science this week, so it must be true. Um, a Norwegian team has found that the first-born children children in a family, or those who'd actually lost their elder siblings and had therefore become the oldest, scored higher on intelligence than their pesky little younger brothers and sisters. And the team studied more than 250,000 men in Norway. And although the difference in IQ between siblings was quite small, it does work out as being statistically significant. And what's really interesting about this is that it's not the absolute order of birth, but you're position in the family that's important so some researchers have previously suggested that differences between siblings are due to different hormone levels and antibody levels in the womb with successive pregnancies but this study shows that it's more likely to be social factors so things like the amount of time that parents have to spend on firstborn children um, and things like older brothers or sisters maybe kind of tutoring or looking after younger, well, younger older brothers, brothers and, sisters. and sisters can't
2: be as good at tutors as parents then because otherwise the, the younger siblings will be as intelligent as the older one or better would Well,
4: it's it's thought that they actually teaching other people helps to boost I think they IQ. teach them bad
2: things and I think well, they're could. a distraction and I know this <laughs> because my brother was very often distracted by what I was up to instead of doing what he should have been doing. But uh, Those
4: pesky younger brothers.
2: I've got a great thing here which is um, to finish off with which is I've called this mirror mirror on the moon rather than mirror mirror on the wall but very excitingly scientists reckon they can make a telescope that's a thousand times more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope and you know how powerful that is. It gave us these wonderful pictures of way back in time because you could see light that came from stars that no longer even exist from the very early vestiges of our universe and this is really natty because what they're saying is you could make a moon-based telescope that would have a mirror in it made of a liquid now sounds a bit weird but why would you use a liquid well the answer is if you choose the right liquid when you spin a liquid under the force of gravity and you can do this on earth and the moon's got gravity so it will work there the gravity pulls the spinning liquid into just the right shape to be the perfect mirror And what these guys, under the uh, sort of guidance of Roger Angel and his colleagues over at the University of Arizona, have done is to find a liquid, an ionic liquid, which can be still a liquid at the freezing cold temperatures on the surface of the Moon. And they've managed to make this liquid, or made a right choice of liquid, so that uh, when the pressure is zero, because there's no pressure on the Moon either, it won't boil off, it won't evaporate. And then they've worked out how to spray it with silver particles, so you can make this liquid surface into the perfect mirror. And this, they mean, this they reckon, will give you the ability to capture huge amounts of light, because this mirror could be huge, and this will give you glimpses back, way back in time, further than we've ever seen.
4: I think it will still make my bum look big, though. Anyway, <laughs> you're listening to the Naked Scientists, and we're here. Uh, coming up later, we're going to be talking about Armageddon, meteorites, volcanoes, earthquakes, explosions, all that kind of fun stuff. If you've got any questions about the Earth, Earth sciences, seismology, all that malarkey, or any general questions about science, medicine, technology, email Chris at thenakedscientists.com.
0: The Naked Scientists. Supported
2: by the Welcome Trust. Now since we've been talking about things which, or we're going to be talking about things which have got inherent risk and hazards associated with them, we thought we would invite onto the programme someone called Joel Veach. And Joel actually is from the website rathergood.com. And Joel, it's interesting because you wrote to New Scientist last year and said that you were a bit concerned about all these measures of things, how we quantify hazards and risks and things. Tell us a bit about that.
6: Well, yeah, I did notice that people were starting to talk about nanohazards and uh, whether there should be warning signs for them, that sort of thing. And it struck me that um, really no one had really defined what a nano hazard actually is because it turns out there is no SI unit for the measurement of hazard. So an SI unit is, a you know, like a metre is an SI unit of length, for example.
2: So what are you proposing?
6: Well, I had to look into the statistics because without statistics, science is nothing. And um, I thought, well, really what we should do is we should find something which poses a decent amount of hazard to a, a large number of people. So having looked through, I realised that curtains, which is something that, of course, most people are <laughs> exposed to on an almost daily basis...
2: What, what sort of curtains did you have in mind? Though?
6: Actually, it's nonspecific. It's any kind of curtain. <laughs> so if you have curtains in the home, then this is a hazard which applies to you, obviously. Um, looking at the statistics for 2002, they, uh, they actually caught 4,080 injuries. In one year,
2: <laughs> so what? But people closing them, opening won't be. You know, this is a classic <laughs> joke. When someone goes to the doctor and says, uh, "Doctor, doctor, I feel like a pair of curtains," the doctor says, "Pull yourself together." I mean, this is what I'd like to say to whoever did this survey.
6: <laughs> it doesn't specify the kinds of injuries. Um, I mean, one can only guess, but it does specify an awful lot of other things which can cause injuries and. Uh, I hate to imagine what those injuries might be. And
2: I had a look at uh, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents' website in which they publish some of these details. Not surprisingly, building and DIY causes about a million accidents a year nationally. But then I had to look further down. I mean, looking at this, bread bins are absolutely lethal. 185 people a year are injuring themselves on bread bins. We need need some kind of warning and and regulation on bread bins.
6: It's true. We should. We should. And interestingly, having another look through there, you'll see that some things which you would have thought would be inherently evil are in fact quite benign. Well, compasses
2: example, and dividers. I mean, the, a compass, you know, nice big pointy spikes in it, the kind of thing teachers would love to ban from classrooms. Zero accidents last year. We need people injuring themselves with these things, so we get them banned.
6: It's right. And a mincer. Uh, one accident <laughs> with a mincer, and again with a mangle. <laughs>
2: well, paper clips apparently caused 62 injuries last year, which is um, devastating. Maybe we should ban those.
6: Maybe we should. I've never found them terrifying myself, but, um, you know... But, I... but
2: returning to the sort of curtain issue, yes. what did you propose that we should do is in terms of coming up with some kind of, of nomenclature and, and unit of risk then?
6: Well, yeah, assuming that we actually need a, a unit for the measurement of hazardicity, uh, or risk as we could say, um, I would say that the risk posed by a curtain over one year, being substantial as we now know, should be, um, should be the unit of measurement. So one curtain would be that amount of risk. And then we could measure the risk posed by other things in relation to their hazardicity Compared to curtains. So, so.
2: building a DIY would be like a mega-curtain?
6: Yeah, yeah, or possibly even a giga-curtain. <laughs> I <mean>, depending on...
2: <laughs> so, do you remember when you used to go to the theatre and they'd have the smoking curtain... <laughs> that's going to go out on the first of July, so I suppose that's a bit of a shame. But so vacuum cleaners, which cause ten thousand injuries every year, right? I, I perish the thought. Why, if people didn't Hoover naked, I suppose it wouldn't happen. But um, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> no, that would be on your scale, one. then that would be roughly two times four thousand. That would be two curtains of risk.
6: Yeah, just over two curtains. Yeah. Okay, so what's yeah. a really small risk then? Well, um, I mean, one good example would be uh, an artist's brush. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> how harmful is that then?
6: Well, in fact, that is how sensitive the data set is. And by that I mean the, um, the data we've got only goes down to one accident per year in the UK. Mm. Or in fact, 21, because it's only one in 21 people covered by the survey. So um, there's only 60 million people in the uh, country. So that means that you can't have, you know, literally every possible hazard, because if there's no one injured by something in this country...
2: You can't quantify then it, doesn't it, yeah. Exactly,
6: it doesn't, it doesn't figure on the stats. So we can go down to, for example, an airbed poses a risk of exactly one centicurtain, pretty much. So one hundredth as dangerous how as How
2: do you curtain. injure yourself with an airbed? I mean...
6: Well, I presume it's not kind of bouncing, though. or... <laughs> uh, no, I have actually gone a bit faint trying to inflate them myself from time to time, so I can see how that could uh, result in a falling over.
2: <laughs> right, so do you, what do you think the chances of, of Downing Street embracing your proposals and us having a warning system based on the curtain level well, I of think risk?
6: That, I think that really depends on how much of a fuss we kick up, really, doesn't it?
2: Are you going to take this to the House of Commons?
6: Well, we... I mean, it occurs to me we have a new premier coming in, don't we? So maybe we should give him the opportunity <laughs> you know,
3: to Well, they're James really mental. quite... This, this
2: government are really quite into regulations and things, aren't they? I also noticed that um, on Rosper's website um, that a real hotspot for accidents and damage are in cemeteries, which I think is quite appropriate, <laughs> really, isn't it? Um, you know, if it <laughs> you're so in it the right place to injure yourself, because then if it's really fatal, you can just fall into a hole and that's that. But yeah, yeah, I
6: suppose so,
2: yeah. Thank you very much, Joe. It's been great having you on the programme. Well, thank you. Joel Veach from the website rathergood.com talking about how we need to have some kind of quantification of risk so that we can regulate things more appropriately.
4: Absolutely. And uh, speaking of risks, we have our teaser today. Which well, is, that's not a risk, is well, it? Well, no, there's no risks involved in answering our teaser unless you can stick your phone up your nose or something. Um, but we want to know who developed the scale that's used to measure the strength of an earthquake. I reckon earthquakes are probably measured in terror curtains. Uh, we've had a few answers in so far. Alan in Bar Hill on the right lines, Tony in Westcliff, Linda in Royston, Pat in Sandon, Katie in, apparently, Curtin, um, Iris in Polchester and John in Warrington. You're all going in a hat because you've all got it right.
2: Now, have you ever wondered how dangerous, talking about risk, a can of fizzy drink can be? Well, we've got Dave and Ben standing ready and waiting at King Edward VI Grammar School, loaded with their fizzy drinks to test this urban myth. So, guys, what are you up to?
3: Hello, welcome to Kitchen Science. This week we're in King Edward VI Grammar School in Chelmsford, and I'm, of course, here with Dave Ansell. Hi. And I'm also here with Bryn. Hi. And with Henry. Hello. And Dave told me something about exploding pop cans today, but, Dave, what's the plan? This sounds sticky. Okay. so what you need for this experiment is two
7: cans of fizzy drink ideally a diet one and that's it really so just two cans of fizzy pop yeah that's right so what i want you to do is shake up those cans put both cans in the sink mm-hmm. i want Bryn to tap his four times quite hard on the top and then we're going to wait about five seconds and open them both
3: now you see i used to do this at my school as well but we always did it to play tricks on people so what do you think is going to happen seeing as we're shaking these cans up
4: well, if I do get wet, which I probably am, I'm not going to be very happy.
3: <laughs> Fair enough. And what do you think?
4: Um, it's going to explode everywhere.
3: Okay, so Dave, you seem to be making kids explode cans all over themselves. Is that your plan? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. So what do you think will happen at home? Do you think the tapping the top of a can will make any difference? If you want to try this at home, I recommend you perhaps use a bathroom or a kitchen sink. But we'll get back to you later on in the show.
2: Thank you, guys. So give it a go. Grab two cans, shake one up, open one, tap the other on the top before opening it, open it up, tell us what happens.
4: Now, I've had some emails in this week, and a few weeks back we were talking about mobile phones being used in petrol stations, which um, is thought to be a hazard, and we were sort of having this discussion and thinking probably it's not that hazardous after all, because mobile phones don't very often cause any kind of sparks. But we've had Andy Monroe in Western Australia... Who's emailed in and he said he was wondering if there should be a sign at fuel stations about football shirts causing sparks, but especially these are uh, probably these nice nylon y football shirts. That Don't judge
2: you, everyone by your own standards. <laughs> if you Kat. take them
4: off in the dark, they go, they spark. Hmm. So um, he's seen sparks from shirts, but never seen sparks caused by a mobile phone. So um, should we have, you know, no football shirts? At our petrol station I think he's
2: got a really good point I mean this whole business About mobile phones People say mobile phones Emit microwaves And microwaves get into Metal things They can induce a current This might make a spark But I've never seen one It's theoretical It's never been proven Yet you can have people Jumping in and out of their cars Wearing very slinky Nylon underwear And making lots of Static electricity On their car seat Or rubbing their shirt All over their head That kind of thing And that will make static And they will make sparks
4: Yeah
2: So we should that. ban people From going into garages Wearing in nylon, nylon knickers Nylon knickers yeah, even, And including the men in.
4: Yeah, no nylon knickers and football shirts.
2: Now I got a quick email here from Pete Sula, who is I think your biggest fan cat, because he said in eleven months, uh, in the last eleven months, I had three cat scans. Boom. and one PET scan so as if you've got a dog uh, the last two CAT scans uh, said no contrast which was apparently something you had to take 15 minutes before the scan um, uh, what, what is the what is this contrast and what does it bring out and he goes on to say the next time I come to England can I have a, a, a CAT scan there because then Dr. Cat could do it and I could have a medical first a CAT cat scan and if Cat's got a sister called Petula I could have a PET PET scan then uh, and he, he then goes on to say he, they, they thought he had lung cancer but actually it was um, scar tissue in his lungs caused by the Korean War where he was running around at my 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Absolutely. I'm oh, not entirely sure how that happened. Um, the answer to that uh, question is contrast is a substance you inject into people, which is usually things like uh, barium or iodine. Hopefully, you don't inject barium it's not very nice, but iodine, it's big nuclei which scatter x-rays and so they go around in the bloodstream and if you have a cancer or something the blood vessels supplying a cancer are leakier than the blood vessels supplying healthy tissue so you tend to get a build-up of the contrast agent in the actual area that's abnormal when the uh, scanner comes along and zaps you with x-rays the x-rays go right through normally but where the contrast is they get scattered and soaked up so they don't get through, and so this makes the tumour or whatever area of abnormality glow up, if you like, like a hot spot. And so as a result, you can pinpoint areas of abnormality using this contrast agent. It makes areas of damage easier to see, basically.
4: And we've got an email in here from uh, Akshay Rao from New Delhi in India so, hello Akshay nice to know you listening over there he has a question about sleep and he says he's often felt his leg muscles suddenly jerking a few minutes when he lies down to sleep and it's usually preceded by a dream where you're about to fall and I, I get this as well when suddenly you sort of jerk and wake up And it's uh, because you, you
2: realise you're late for the Naked Scientist show
4: yeah usually um is is that that's caused by your brain and your you slowing down. It's a and down and jerk. Sleep, Yeah, it's um, it? when
2: you go to sleep at night your brain paralyzes your body because what you don't want is for you acting out all your dreams, especially your dreams. But <laughs> dreams what would be quite it would be really rather devastating if um you you know when you're running away or fighting with people if you started doing that in your sleep because not only would it mean the person in the bed with you would have quite a rough night's sleep, but also it could be damaging to you. So your brain paralyzes the body when you go to sleep to stop you being able to do that. And as that system kicks in, Uh, what happens is that you can sometimes have these hypnic jerks where all the muscles contract suddenly and violently, and you go, ooh, what was that? And for some reason it's associated with the uh, dreams like falling off a cliff, that kind of stuff. But it's called a hypnic jerk. It's quite normal. Lots of people have them. Fair enough. Now, it is The Naked Scientist, and uh, we have a teaser running this week because in a second we're going to be talking all about the science of geology and mega eruptions and disasters and that kind of thing. But we also have our teaser, and we want to know who invented the scale... Uh, which are
8: used to measure the strength of earthquakes.
4: And now it's time to hop stateside to find out what Bob and Chelsea are up to in this week's science update.
8: Well, we know that the topic on Naked Scientists this week is natural disasters, but we haven't reported on any interesting natural disaster science for a couple of weeks. So now for something completely different two stories on health. I'll talk about the depression-busting action of yoga, but first, Chelsea's here to answer that age-old philosophical question, what's the sound of one bicep flexing?
9: Doctors listen to your heart and lungs. Someday they could also listen to your muscles. Yes, your muscles make noise as they contract, and if you listen carefully right now, you can barely hear the sound of a bicep sped up so it's audible. It was recorded by acoustician Kareem Sabra of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, who placed sensors along the bicep. His team has shown it's possible to use this noise to detect a muscle's stiffness.
1: And the main idea is that uh, if the muscle is stiff, uh, waves propagate fast into it. If the muscle is soft... Propagates slower.
9: The technique needs more work, but it could prove useful for monitoring neuromuscular diseases or even diagnosing pulled tendons. And it could also cut down on the need for x-rays and MRIs.
8: Thanks, Chelsea. In other health and fitness news, scientists have found that yoga may boost brain chemicals that stave off anxiety and depression. This according to a study led by Chris Streeter, a psychiatrist and neurologist at the Boston University School of Medicine. The study focused on a chemical called GABA, which is known to be low in people with depression and anxiety. Streeter's team measured GABA levels in the brains of experienced yoga practitioners before and after an hour of yoga postures and breathing exercises. A control group simply read for an hour. And the yoga
9: people showed a 27% increase in GABA levels as a group,
8: and the controls had really no change. While this study can't prove that yoga alone would have this effect, some other studies also suggest that yoga may combat mood disorders, especially in combination with traditional psychiatric treatments.
9: Thanks, Bob. Next time we'll really tell you what happens when you mix a baby with a trumpet because we didn't get to it this week. Until
4: then, I'm Chelsea Wald.
8: And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists.
4: Thanks, guys. And you can find out more from the Science Update team on their website, which is scienceupdate.com.
2: It's The Naked Scientist with Chris and Kat, and we're joined this week by, first up, Janet Sumner from The Open University. Hello, Janet. Hi, Chris. Thank you for coming in. Now, tell us, um, you're interested in looking at the subject of why we get mega eruptions and uh, meteorites and things—the things that wipe stuff out.
5: Yeah, I work on natural hazards, and they're they're pretty uh, much larger things than Joel's uh, curtain hazards. Uh, in fact, they're they're pretty big natural hazards.
2: This would be a sort of giga, giga, giga curtain. Uh,
5: it would be a super giga curtain. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that really results in a global mass extinction. You know, that's a total eradication of entire groups of species. We're talking like the death of the dinosaurs here, basically.
2: So what do you think actually um, triggers the death of the dinosaurs? Do, do, you, do you know what it was? Was it a massive great eruption? We're, we're all used to the idea that some kind of meteorite slammed into Earth. Which do you think it is?
5: Well, that's true, actually. I mean, it was and it still is widely believed that the dinosaurs were wiped out by the impact of the Chicxulub meteorite into the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico about 65 million years ago. But there have been five great mass extinctions in the past 450 million years. And the dinosaur one is the only one associated with a meteorite impact. All the others, all the other mass extinctions, including the dinosaurs as well, all correspond to the outpourings of huge flood lava eruptions.
2: Well, if we could look at both of those things in turn then. So the meteorite that slammed into the Gulf of Mexico, how big would that have been to have been able to alter the planet so dramatically that nearly all life ceased?
5: Well, it was many, many tens of kilometres across. um, And and basically the, the effects of a large meteorite impact like that are devastating but the fact is because we'd had this really long-running volcanic eruption going on for thousands of years the dinosaurs were already on the way out and all the impact did was finish them off a bit quicker
2: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realise that uh, the dinosaurs were already waning because I thought they were kind of at their peak around that time.
5: No, they'd already pretty much had it because there'd been one of these huge flood lava eruptions going on in India for many thousands of uh, years. And what we now know happens with these flood lava eruptions is when a volcano explodes, it releases ash and sulphur. That gets up into the atmosphere and it produces a kind of blanket in the atmosphere and that prevents the sun's rays from getting through so it causes a global environmental change and interestingly it's actually the opposite of what's going on at the moment because right now we've got global warming when you get a big flood lava eruption like this you actually get global cooling because this blanket stops the rays of the sun from getting through and keeping us warm.
2: So what actually is this flood lava? Uh, Where does it come from? What provokes it and why is it so devastating?
5: These massive eruptions are often associated with um, with plate, plate tectonic movements and rifting and big upwellings of hot material coming out of the mantle, and they can break through cracks in the surface. Um, and as I say, they can go on for thousands of years, and they can produce piles of lavas that are up to three kilometres thick. Now, the thing about the sulphur and the ashes, you've got to get it up into the atmosphere for it to do its work. And for a long time, scientists thought that flood lavas just kind of spew out onto the ground really quietly and then just flow off. The research that I've been doing has now proved that that's not the case because I found lots and lots of beds of ash within these flood lava successions. And where you've got ash, you have to have an explosive eruption. So now it looks like that these flood lavas are coming out so violently that the molten rock is being ripped to bits and forming a huge curtain of fire topped off by a massive ash plume. So, hey presto, now we can get our ash and sulphur up into the atmosphere and cause enough global cooling to cause mass extinctions.
2: So when was the one which had done for the dinosaurs? You mentioned... Briefly,
5: Chicxulub impact that was sixty-five million years ago. That was ago. the
2: meteorite. That was the meteorite. The, when was the the big lava outpouring that had already begun to see off the dinosaurs? Then? It
5: started uh, about sixty, um, just over sixty-five million years ago. So it was exactly the same period. It just precluded, or was just in front of, the Chicxulub impact, which happened at, virtually at the end of it.
2: And where was all that lava coming out? Was this a, a sort of unstable period of Earth's geology, so it was happening everywhere, or is it just one place on Earth?
5: It, they tend to happen periodically in different parts of the Earth. Um, The one I was looking at was actually in India, um, as as rifting was starting to happen in India. But we've also got one closer to home in the uh, North Atlantic Igneous Province, Uh, just up to the north of us Um, they've also got one that have happened in Africa so they happen all over the world at different at different periods so how could people
2: have missed this before because I know everyone's attention has been focused on the idea that a meteorite arrived it changed the earth's weather so dramatically it wiped out the dinosaurs how could they have missed three kilometers thick of lava deposits
5: well we knew it was there and we knew that large flood lava eruptions do cause mass extinctions because of this really strong correlation. What we didn't know, we didn't know the mechanism for getting this ash and sulphur up into the atmosphere to actually cause the global cooling because everybody thought the lavas just flooded out, hence the name, flood lavas. But now we know that there is a mechanism for them to come out explosively and actually to put that ash up into the stratosphere where it can do its damage.
4: So is there any chance of one of these flood lava situations happening again? Are we we Mm -hmm. due one?
5: That is always the question that everybody asks. Are there going to be any more mass extinctions? And why? Because we're worried about us, aren't we? Yeah. Well, the answer is yes, there could be another mass extinction. One, if we were hit by another really big meteorite, and two, if we did have another flood lava eruption. But what is more likely to happen, a much bigger hazard for us, is if we have a supervolcano go off. Now, supervolcano eruptions happen every 50,000 to every 100,000 years. And there are a number of supervolcanoes around the world, and one particular candidate is long overdue, and that's Yellowstone Volcano in the US. Now, that is overdue by some thousands of years. So if that was to blow... It probably wouldn't cause global mass extinction, but it would certainly cause global famine, and that would probably mean the end of civilization as we know it. Uh,
2: what's the prospect that it will? Um, what's going on there? Because people say the I'm land is moving. And <laughs> it how it, long has it probably been there?
5: It, it, oh, gosh, Yellowstone has been around for hundreds of thousands of years, and I think it's had three major eruptions in its lifetime. It is due for another one, and scientists have seen that the land is doming up. But, I mean, it could be another 50,000 years before it happens. It's very, very hard to predict with these things. Will it definitely
2: go bang, or could it just sort of go fut, like a uh, failed firework? I
5: don't think it's going to go fut. I think the chances of a, of a big bang are, are probably fairly high. But I don't I don't want to be too depressing here, doom and gloom. But what I actually wanted to say was, have you ever seen a meteorite?
2: Actually, uh, I have, but, but that was because uh, I saw it in a museum. I've never actually held one.
5: Well, if you want to hold something from outer space, you can, because I've got one in my pocket. i B- brought my mother-in-law give to it. see
2: me. Let's see. Oh,
5: wow. I want it. Now, that's, it? that's a stony iron meteorite. Um, this is
2: incredible. Um, I
0: want to see.
2: this. This is I'm, I'm holding a pebble, which is just sitting in the palm of my hand. I'm going to give it to Kat in a minute, because she's itching to look at it. But it's it just looks like any other lump of rock, uh, although it looks a bit iron. It's a bit rusty. Has it got some iron in it?
5: Yeah, it's a bit rusty on the outside and you'll see it's got one polished cut surface on it and you Mm. can actually see the iron glinting in there. So that's a lump of rock and iron which makes it a stony iron meteorite. Now, if you notice the outside of it is quite smooth as well. That's actually something called a fusion crust and that has happened as it actually heated up and started to melt as it came through our atmosphere and ultimately landed on Earth. Now, that one's only about as big as a golf ball Mm. but it's also quite heavy because of all the iron in it. Now, if you can imagine a much, much larger scale meteorite and that hitting the Earth, it would probably make a bit of a mess.
2: That would be about four and a half billion years old, presumably, the the age of the solar system, presumably, that one. Yes. So that's pretty impressive. I don't think I've ever held anything quite that old.
4: This is pretty cool. Looks it, nice to handle, it have doesn't make once. great radio though, ooh <laughs> look at
2: this we'll put a picture of it on our website, this is the Naked Scientist with Chris and Kat we've just been talking to the Open University's Janet Sumner, she's here with us if you'd like to ask her any questions about the kind of things she's been talking about, super volcanoes, massive lo- outpourings of lava, or massive meteorites that slam into the earth and wipe out life as we know it. Uh, up next, Peter Kellerman's on the way, he's going to talk about the science of earthquakes but if you fancy having a go at kitchen science don't forget, two tins of drink, shake them up tap on the top of one, open both simultaneously tell us what happens, or if you want to have have a go at our teaser.
4: We want to know who was the inventor of the scale that we use to measure earthquakes.
10: Laying the facts bare, Ooh. the naked scientists.
4: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat, and we're talking about natural disasters, the really big stuff, volcanoes, earthquakes and all that malarkey. And we're joined by Peter Kellerman, who's from Columbia University. Hi, Peter. Hi, Kat. Hello, thanks for coming all the way over from the States. Oh, yeah, just for this. <laughs> just for this, it's great. So, um, tell us a bit about earthquakes. What's happening when an earthquake's happening?
11: Well, in general, what happens is that there's already a fault surface and there's friction on the fault surface. And as that's overcome, it becomes much easier for the rocks to slide by one another. So that's really crucial, that it's hard to get it started. And then once it gets started, it runs away.
4: And are are all earthquakes the same? I mean, you sort of hear an earthquake has happened. Is is everything the same? Are they the same speed? Where, Where do they happen in the Earth?
11: Well, there's a huge variety of earthquakes. And maybe I'll just take the where question first. And that is, you know, there's... The the big earthquakes are where the tectonic plates are sliding by one another, one way or another. And so the very biggest ones are in the subduction zones where oceanic plates are being slid beneath the continents. So
4: where do we have these around the world?
11: Well, they're in the ring of fire, so-called, or the seismic zone next to the ring of fire around the Pacific, and then in the lesser Antilles and... Elsewhere. So
4: these are places like Japan that are particularly Japan susceptible. And,
11: uh, and then, of course, uh, that kind of plate boundary turns into what we call a strike slip fault, where, where plates are sliding by one another, and that's the big deal in San Francisco.
4: So the sort of earthquakes you're looking at, they're a particular type, aren't they, called intermediate depth. What does that mean?
11: Well, we were interested in those. I mean, first of all, I have to tell you, I'm not a seismologist. I'm a geologist. I just work on rocks. And, and uh, But we got interested in intermediate depth earthquakes because of things we saw in the rocks. And, uh Intermediate depth earthquakes have been hard for seismologists to understand because they occur beneath a big pile of rock that could be uh, 50 or 100 kilometers thick. And so the ordinary kind of sliding on a fault surface is very difficult when you've got 100 kilometers of rock sitting on top of you. And And so we see these uh, shear zones that formed at those depths in the mantle of the Earth that are now exposed by plate tectonics. And you can see that there was no fracture, but there was a, a zone of very, very highly localised deformation. And sometimes you can see that these rocks got so hot that they melted.
4: And are these types of earthquakes particularly damaging?
11: Yeah, they're just as bad as the, uh, as the shallower kind. There have been some really big ones in Bolivia that were, were quite uh, damaging to cities.
4: And um, we've got a caller now who wants to talk about earthquakes. Is that Mark?
11: Hello there.
1: Hello.
4: What's okay. your question?
1: Um, my question is, um, when um, the geologists and seismologists talk about earthquakes, they, they very rarely mention the, the influence of tides. Um, the, the many of the earthquakes, including the Boxing Day earthquake in, that caused the tsunami in the Indian Ocean a couple of years back, happen at a time of, of uh, very high tides. And I just wonder what your geologist had to say about that.
11: Is well, there is- isn't. There is a well-known cyclicity with tides for micro-earthquakes, and presumably that extends to macro-earthquakes. There's this idea of sort of self-organized criticality, that things get poised on the brink of failure, and then just some very, very small phenomenon is all it takes to push them over the edge. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was a correlation in general between great earthquakes and tides.
1: Yes, I think, you, think you'll find if, if you look at uh, many larger earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, if if you just check the tide patterns, you'll find that the um, they often happen at periods of uh, higher than average tides.
11: Right, but that doesn't mean that if you live in San Francisco, you should worry every time yeah. the tide is higher than average. <laughs> no, but
1: you should be aware at that, that particular time rather than other times. Yeah, sure. Yeah.
11: I suppose um, that the point that Mark's
2: making to to us, Peter, is that the moon is exerting a gravitational effect on the Earth, and hence I suppose it, if you've got water, big bodies of water moving, that's quite a big weight pushing down, isn't it? And I suppose that could that could make a difference to to the way in which uh, plates and un- sort tectonic air interaction zones actually do interact, and therefore might actually suddenly release all the pent up energy.
11: Without a doubt, there is a correlation, and you can watch the. Uh, now that we have instruments on the seafloor regularly, you can watch the mid-ocean ridges kind of breathe uh, with the tide. The earthquakes and and the hydrothermal water coming out, the hot water coming out, goes with the tidal cycles. Thanks for that, Mark. It's a good question.
1: Yep,
2: really good. interesting. Good having you on the program. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. It's interesting because I for one, was quite shocked. I looked at the US Geological Survey's website today uh, to see, because they monitor uh, earthquakes that are going on all around the world all the time, and I didn't realise that yesterday there were 22 earthquakes. Today, at lunchtime, there had already been 12 earthquakes, one of them in the middle of the Pacific, measuring almost six on the certain scale that we've been talking about this evening. Uh, as part
11: of our teaser. And I, I was quite surprised,
2: actually, at how, A, how many there were and how strong
11: they were. Well, actually, it's kind of a a matter of definition, and as our instruments get better, there are going to be more and more earthquakes that people are reporting. So uh, uh, the magnitude one and magnitude less than one earthquakes are extremely frequent and happen for all sorts of reasons, having to do, you know, for example, people pumping water out of the ground.
4: And how, how is our knowledge about the sort of causes of earthquakes, some of the work that you've been doing, is it helping us to predict where earthquakes are going to happen any better?
11: Well, one of the most important outcomes of of our research is the idea that even below the so-called brittle ductile transition, where it's very difficult for rocks to fracture, there can be non-steady deformation in the earth. And because the mantle is much, much stronger than the crust, if the mantle is moving in a non-steady way, sort of jerking forward and then standing still for centuries, that's going to be extremely influential in terms of causing shallower crustal earthquakes. So if it is a factor, and we're not sure yet, it's something you'd have to know in order to predict the shallower earthquakes. Thank you very much.
2: That's Peter Kellerman, who is from Columbia University. He's in Cambridge for a conference at the moment, and he kindly agreed to drop in and tell us about his work on earthquakes. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought
11: to you by thenakedscientist.com.
2: Now, continuing our theme here on The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Kat, of hazards and that kind of thing, Michael Watts is with the British Geological Survey, and something you've been doing quite a lot of, Michael, is looking at Argentinian arsenic. Tell us about that.
10: Um, Yeah, this is a project that uh, we're doing in collaboration with uh, the University of Surrey. Um, Professor Neil Ward actually set up this work. Uh, We're doing this through a co-sponsorship of a PhD student. And the idea is is that she's looking at a northern region in Argentina, San Juan and uh, La Rioja, well known for the wine. Um, uh, It's also well known for high arsenic levels in, in the local water systems and in the soils. Um, So what we're doing is um, helping out uh, local geoscience institutes and local universities and with uh, local medics we're trying to build up a picture of what is actually going on. So we're sort of building up um, information in sort of three layers, uh, working out the environmental geochemistry, so sort of surveying waters and soils for the arsenic content. Where, Where is
2: all this arsenic actually coming from in the first place?
10: well um arsen- the arsenic will generally be uh, naturally occurring in the, in the environment, um, but there may well be it may well be present in wood systems due to mining activities. The Victorians or,
2: were very fond of it because it made very nice green wallpaper uh, and then made people go green and die um but but you know why actually is it toxic and and why is it something we need to worry about
10: well it- um, it's, it's a natural, you know, it's a well-known poison. Um, I mean, one of the issues is actually the, the chemistry of the arsenic and the form that it's present in. So that, that's something that needs to be considered. You may have a lot of arsenic present in the environment, but it, the toxicity and the availability to be taken up by humans is really dependent on the chemical form. So that could be the redox conditions the, or, um, or the formation as a, or, or the presence as an organic compound.
2: So when people drink water or eat food or whatever that's been grown on arsenic-contaminated land, that's a way in which they can get the arsenic into their body?
10: Yeah, or via hand-to-mouth contact. So if you've got a bit of soil on your hands, if you've done a bit of gardening, and you just touch your mouth, um, that's one way. Or, yes, or soil attached to vegetables.
2: So how are you actually trying to study how much arsenic the people are being exposed to? Is there a way of doing that?
10: Um, well, with this Argentinian work, we're sort of building up a, a survey of as I said, of the waters and soils, looking at agricultural products, and then that will lead to human studies. So with the help of local medical experts, we're collating information from, from uh, rural communities and getting a sort of medical history of the people, uh, where there have been a, uh, a number of cases of deaths or even um, health conditions related to arsenic poisoning. Uh, but we really need to sort of confirm this anecdotal link between environmental data and the end point where people are ending up with diseases.
2: Someone was saying to me the other day that earthworms are proving really quite useful in trying to work out what's in the soil.
10: Um, Yeah, that's that's some work we've been doing in the UK. Um, It's it's been well documented that earthworms are are excellent indicators of the health of soil, Uh, and one of those... uh, uses is to look at the arsenic uptake in the earthworm and look at the the effect on its on its health. We can do that by looking at cell damage um, as a result of exposure to arsenic.
2: So rather than a canary in a cage, you've got an earthworm in the ground and you can use that as the index of, of the degree of contamination?
10: Yes. Um, I mean, the, the, there's a tentative link to humans there. Um, it's more, more, an, more an indicator of eco-toxicity. I mean, we do use another technique called the which is a physiologically based extraction technique Um, and this is quite a popular technique for uh, simulating the human gut so we do a laboratory controlled experiment and in a a tube we'll put the soil into a tube and then add uh, bile juices and acids and so on to simulate the stomach
2: so it's like a uh, sort of stomach in a dish
10: yeah that's it really and um, so we'll look at how much arsenic is released from the soil, so how much is available for the human to be taken up, uh, how much arsenic is available to the human to be taken up. Um, so rather than just looking at the total arsenic in the soil, we're looking at the accessible arsenic, which is a very important point.
2: And very briefly, Michael, um, if you discover there's lots of arsenic in the soil, what can you actually do to, to remedy the situation?
10: Well, that's, that's quite a difficult issue. Um, I mean, one of, one of the most expensive uh uh, remedies is to actually remediate the land and take it away from landfill and replace it um, it 's a very difficult thing to do or seal the land um, for for communities in argentina that 's a very difficult issue because uh, basically um, relying reliant on uh, subsistence farming um, uh, the 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 uh, there might be a recommendation for filtering the irrigation water, um, whether there are engineering means to, to correct that, or maybe they source the water in other, in, in other ways.
2: So and really avoidance avoidance rather than cure at this stage, I suppose.
10: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult thing. That's beyond our expertise, really. I mean, we can build up the weight of evidence um, to suggest that the arsenic is there, and it could, be a, it could be a problem, or maybe it's just perfectly happy sitting there and not causing any problems. But it's really building up the weight of evidence so that... Um, government institutions can come in and recommend uh, uh, methods of remediation.
2: Okay, Michael Watts, thank you very, very much for joining us on the program. That's Michael Watts from the British Geological Survey, who's been studying arsenic contamination in the ground over in Argentina.
4: And now it's time for our question of the week. And in last week's show, we tried to answer your question about the attractive forces of light bulbs on insects. And in response to that question, we've had an email from Bruno in Brazil. And he reckons that insects have a uh, faster frame rate than humans. This means that they can see things faster than we can. So the light from a light bulb that may appear continuous to us it might appear to be blinking to an insect, so it's this blinking effect that's attracting the insects rather than the light per se. And, you know, that's probably an interesting area for researchers to investigate, uh, but Bruno suggests we probably need to be able to see like insects to understand the problem. But anyway, this week we have a question of the week, and we've asked, why do people get stuck in
9: quicksand? Hello, welcome to question of the week. Here with this week's question is Danny. Hi, I'm Danny in Alaska, and I'd like to know about quicksand. Why do people get stuck in quicksand and how can they get back out? Thank you. Hmm, quicksand. Well, I'm stuck on that one. The expert with the answer is Daniel Bonn from the Laboratoire de Physique Statistique in Paris.
0: So there's basically three myths surrounding quicksand. The first myth is that you shouldn't move when you fall into it. The second is that once you're stuck in it, it's impossible to get out. And the third myth is that you will eventually drown in it. Now, the first myth and the second myth actually turned out to be true, and we studied that using a natural sample of quicksand from Iran. Basically, if you move in quicksand, it becomes extremely liquid, and so if you, if you really move violently, you will sink in uh, at, at a great speed, so you, you indeed shouldn't move. Then, once you're in, the sand grains in the quicksand will pile up around your feet, and that makes it incredibly difficult to get out of the quicksand again. Uh, Basically, we calculated the force you need to lift your foot at one centimeter a second is equivalent to the force of lifting a a medium-sized car. But the third myth that you can drown in it, which is a myth that is seen in many, many Hollywood movies, uh, such as, for instance, Hound of the Baskervilles, is absolutely not true, uh, and that's simply due to the buoyancy force. So we've known that uh, since the old Greeks, since Archimedes... Basically, you're half as dense as quicksand, and so you will actually float in it.
9: Okay, so based on Daniel's expertise, here's the Naked Scientist's quicksand survival guide. Number one, don't panic. Any violent movements will make you sink in deeper. The other reason not to panic is that actually you won't drown. Number two, to get out, make small, slow, circular movements, which should help to liquefy the quicksand, making it easier to escape. Phew. Here's next week's puzzle.
10: Hi, I'm Sebastian from London. I'd like to know what would happen if I was to fall out of a spacecraft without a spacesuit on? Would I explode space as space is a vacuum?
9: Do you think you know what would happen to a naked astronaut? I'd like to hear all about it. Or perhaps you have a question of your own. Drop
4: me a line to Week at thenakedscientist.com That's all for this week. Now back to the studio. And that's Sabina, one of our naked scientists. Um, and we've also had an email in about this from Philip in Los Angeles. And he says, if your leg gets trapped in quicksand, the grains of sand form a sort of a cone with your leg in the centre. And this is almost the same as our kitchen science a couple of weeks ago, where you had uh, rice in a cup and you're sort of jiggling a knife around in it. And this is how you can sink in quicksand, but it's extremely hard to pull out of it. And so to get out, you need to, as we said, wiggle your leg in a circle to get a layer of water going in between your leg and the sand. So you can get out that way. And if you think what would, you know what would happen to you if you leapt out of a spacecraft naked without a spacesuit on, then do email us at questionoftheweek at com. And if
2: you've got any interesting and intriguing science questions that you'd like Sabina to solve for you, same email address. Now, in a second or two, we're going to be going back to King Edward VI Grammar School for our kitchen science. We asked you to pop the cap on a can of fizzy drink that you'd shaken up earlier and see if it sprays everywhere, and then take a second can and tap the top having shaken it, and see if it doesn't spray everywhere... What did you find? Well, before we head to them, I've got some interesting emails come in. One's from Mark. He says, um, you guys keep me sane on the London Underground during the rush hour. I listen to your podcast. Can you explain to me why is carbon dioxide used to make fizzy drinks, might not something else, some other gas or plain air even?
4: Well, there's two reasons. Uh, The reason that you don't use oxygen for this is because oxygen is very good at oxidising things and makes them go off. So it probably wouldn't make your drink taste very nice. Uh, The other reason that we use carbon dioxide is that it's basically uh, a neutral chemical. It doesn't react with stuff. Um, so you can stick carbon dioxide in it, and it's not gonna your drink's not gonna go off. And also, carbon dioxide's based on an acid, uh, so it actually acids have a nice kind of lemony, sparkly taste in your mouth, and it makes your fizzy drink taste better. And um, along the same lines as fizzy drinks, we also have a question in from Jake Jennings, who's in Owensboro in Kentucky, which I'm assuming is in America, and he says, "Why is it when your beer's gone flat, the fizz seems to come back when you sprinkle some salt in the glass?" Is there a chemical reaction at work? Chris?
2: No, what's actually happening is that when you've shaken up your drink and all the fizz has appeared to come out because it goes tss, like that, there's still a lot of carbon dioxide, the fizz chemical, dissolved in the liquid. So when you leave it standing for a while again, more carbon dioxide comes out of the liquid where it's dissolved and forms above the liquid again so that it seems to have come back when you take the cap off. Or if you just sprinkle the salt or the sugary things in, then you've got what's called lots of nucleation sites, spiky sites, where the gas finds it easy to form and you get fizz back again. Anyway, we're just about to rejoin Dave and Ben, who are over at Kegs, but before then, let's hear from Simon, who has had a go at the experiment. Hi, Simon.
6: Hello.
2: What did you find?
6: Um, It actually did work. Well, what do you mean? It doesn't make make you wet if you tap it four times.
2: Okie dokie. Well, let's head back and find out if you're right. Stay on the line. Guys, what's the answer?
3: Welcome back to Kitchen Science. Now, for this experiment, you need two cans of fizzy pop and we're going to shake them up as much as possible. We've got our two lads from Keg School here, and they're still shaking their cans up, so they should be really well shook up now. Give them one last final big shake. And now, both at the same time, I want you to put them in the sink. And Dave, I'll let you lead them through what's next. So
7: you probably want to point them away from you at this point. OK, so now, Bryn, I'd like you to hit the top of that can quite hard about four times. OK, so now I want you to open your cans.
3: Henry first.
4: Uh fuzz everywhere, loads of liquid coming out, and it's all going down
3: the sinkhole. So we've wasted quite a lot of pop with that one spilling everywhere. Let's see what happens to the one that got tapped.
4: Well, actually, nothing came out. It was just a tiny bit of fizz, and it didn't even come next to the rim, so I think it works.
3: So, Dave, clearly tapping the top of a can saves you from a bit of a sticky mess and from wasting some of your drink, but why, why would that happen? Okay, if you come over
7: here, I've got a couple of clear bottles of lemonade so you can see what's going on. So, Bryn, if you'd like to shake this up... And if you look at the side of the lemonade bottle, what can you see, Bryn?
4: Um, The bubbles are just sticking to the side.
7: Yeah, that's right. So when we shook it up, we made lots and lots of bubbles, and quite a lot of them are still stuck to the side of the bottle. Now, Henry, I want you to open that bottle, and while you do it, watch the bubbles very carefully.
4: Uh, the bubbles are all coming up and they're getting hot. Up. <laughs> it's not been our day today. Been been
3: <laughs> Maybe your day. It's been your day for soaking children.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
7: okay, so it's really hard to actually start forming a bubble in uh, a bottle of lemonade. But once one's there, it's very easy for it to grow. So if you've got a load of bubbles already started from when you're shaking it up, sticking to the size of the wall, When you open it and release the pressure, it's really easy for those to grow, so they can get much bigger really quickly and make the amount of liquid in that bottle get hugely bigger until it spurts out everywhere. Now, what we're going to try with the second bottle is we're going to do the same thing, but just try tapping it on the floor a few times and see if it makes any difference. So, Henry, do you want to shake it? That looks good. So now what I want you to do is pick it up and hit it on the table a few times. Just gently.
4: Bubbles are rising up to the top when they're
8: unsticking from the side.
3: So all the bubbles are coming unstuck from the side of the bottle and they're rising up to the top where there's a patch of air at the top?
7: Yeah, that's the idea. So if we just keep hitting it on the ground until we dislodge most of those bubbles... Can you see any bubbles on the side now?
4: Uh, No, none.
7: So now, Henry, if you'd like to open that gently...
4: Um, some bubbles rose to the top, then it didn't go anywhere near the top of the bottle.
3: So you didn't get squirted on? Nope. So, Dave, how come we shake one bottle up and we open it and everybody gets covered in lemonade, and then we shake the next one up, but we hit it for a while, and just the gas comes out but no water? Why was that? Well,
7: because all of the bubbles have managed to come up to the surface. If the gas at the surface expands, it will just hiss out. But because there's no bubbles inside to expand and blow the lemonade out the top, um,
3: you stay dry and everything's fine. So because all the gas that's under pressure is now in the top by the opening and there are no bubbles under pressure down under the liquid, it means that when you open it, the pressure's released, the gas expands, but instead of pushing the liquid out of the way to get out, it just all comes out itself.
7: Yes, there's still lots of carbon dioxide dissolved in the liquid, but there's no effort for it to form bubbles so it doesn't expand. So it stays as
3: dissolved carbon dioxide instead of coming out as a, as a gas. Yeah, that's right. So what do you think of that, then?
4: Well, that was quite fun, getting some lemonade into my system. Yeah, the sticky part wasn't as fun as the other parts, but still, it was nice.
3: So will you be tapping all of your cans of pop from now on to make sure they don't squirt out everywhere?
4: Um, Definitely. I don't want any more fizz over me.
3: Well, I hope nobody at home is quite as sticky with lemonade as we are here. But that is all we've got time for from Kitchen Science today. So, from Dave Ansell... Goodbye. ...from myself and from our wonderful helpers, Henry and Bryn, it's...
2: Goodbye. That was so cool because you often hear that trotted out, but you never know whether or not it's really true whether you should believe it so also well done Simon who tested it he was calling from Braintree said it was true and he was absolutely right so thank you to Henry and Bryn who got wet in the name of science at King Edward the 6th Grammar School in Chelmsford
4: It's good to know because I always do that and it's nice to know I feel vindicated now anyway we've had our teaser running all day and uh, we want to know who developed the magnitude scale that earthquakes are measured by and our winner is from Bielefeld in Germany and it's Christian Mertes and he says it was invented by Charles Francis Richter and Benno Gutenberg and they developed the Richter scale in 1935 why it's
2: not called the uh, Richter whatever then well it it used to be called
4: Gutenberg but apparently it used to be called the ML scale so Richter is is sort of usurped the, the true crown yeah he got in there
2: Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Next time, it's our science Q&A extravaganza. The entire hour of The Naked Scientists will be devoted to answering your science questions. And the wackier they are, the better. So please send them to me now, chris at NakedScientists.com. And do also drop us a line, even if you haven't got a question, just to say hi, because we love hearing from you, especially if you're in some remote and very exquisite or tropical part of the world. And do also consider dropping by the Naked Scientist Forum. That's nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, which is a thriving hive of scientific discourse. Go and check it out. It'd be great to see you. Have a great week. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to our production team, Asie, Ben, Dave, Sabina and Charlotte. See you next time.